If you'll turn to Psalm 122, Psalm 122. Psalm 122 is part of a collection of psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent. These are the songs that the people of God sung as they ascended the hill to Jerusalem for various festivals required by Old Testament law. The Psalms of Ascent prioritize the wonder and majesty of God who dwells with his people and inflames the worship of the heart in those who ascend into his presence. They focus on the restoration of God's redemptive plan in the midst of the tragic effects of the fall. They call us to bow before the lordship of God over creation, to repent of our sins, to rest in the covenant faithfulness of the Lord, and to dwell in his eternal presence as we await the arrival of his glorious kingdom. The emphasis is on the restoration of God's presence with his people that was lost in our rebellion against his rule and is regained through the enthroned king who rules from the inner sanctuary of the temple. That is the setting of Psalm 122. We'll see these themes interwoven and we'll talk, flesh them out more as we go along. So let's come to Psalm 122 and let's, let's read it. The word of the Lord. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your goods. As we consider this text, the main idea that I will attempt to communicate by the grace of God is that because we are the temple kingdom of God, we must rule in Christ through the gathered assembly in unity, peace, and love. Because we are the temple kingdom of God, we must rule in Christ through the gathered assembly in unity, peace, and love. And so we'll be separating that and dissecting it and seeing how Psalm 122 is communicating this truth. So first, what may not be as obvious is that we are the temple kingdom of God. This whole psalm, the context is the house of God, the temple. This is what was so special about Jerusalem was that it had the temple in it. The temple being the place in the Old Testament context, in the Old Covenant, where God would dwell with his people. A bit different than today, where the Holy Spirit indwells all believers. Back in that day, the Holy Spirit was still active and still operated, but it was very much attached to this special building called the temple. That's where God's presence was. That's where the people of God came to experience God's presence, to worship, to make the sacrifices. This was the center of Jerusalem. This was the center of religious life within the people of Israel. So if you remember what God called Israel, a kingdom of priests. Israel was, in fact, a temple kingdom. The temple was the, what distinguished them 
from the nations around them. Their temple housed the true God. Other temples housed false gods. And so Jerusalem is the centerpiece where all the tribes would go up and meet with their God. Sadly, as we know from the history of Israel, that the the temple of God was essentially removed from Israel. Israel broke the covenant, the old covenant. And because that in Ezekiel, there's this picture given where the Holy Spirit, where God's presence is removed from the temple. The temple no longer houses God's presence because of the rebellion of Israel. And so God departs, leaving a barren structure with no life and no presence of God. And yet there's always a ring of hope within the Old Testament. These psalms give us this hope, and yet even after the exile, after their rebellion, there's still this this desire and longing for the return of the Spirit of God, the presence of God. So we see in Isaiah 2, 2 2-3, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." You see, the prophets talk about a coming day in which Jerusalem will regain this status. Where once again, God will dwell with his people. And in Matthew 21, 42 to 44, we see Jesus reflects this idea as well. In talking with the religious leaders, he's just given them a parable, the parable of the tenants, where he's very much targeted the unbelief of the religious leaders. And then in light of the unbelievers' rejection of Jesus, their king, Jesus says to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is talking about the rebuilding of the temple. The cornerstone, taken from Psalm 118, it's not just any cornerstone. It's not just a a cornerstone of any building. Uh, Jesus is talking about the rebuilding of the temple, the restoration of the presence of God with the people of God. And this all happens within the the kingdom of God, the walls of Jerusalem, as as is described here in Psalm 122. This is the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls, the the rebuilding of the temple on the foundation, the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And so Peter continues this metaphor, this analogy. 1 Peter 2, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, Peter is, is drawing on texts like this, Psalm 122. Jerusalem built as a city. That's a bit of an interesting phrase. And Augustine remarks how, well, Jerusalem is a city. And it already had been built in the, in the writing of Psalm 122. If we're talking about the physical structure of Jerusalem, we would say Jerusalem has been built as a city, or was built as a city. But the psalmist uses the present tense, and I know grammar is not the most exciting thing to talk about on a Sunday morning, but it's helpful. Why use the present tense, and why use the word as a city? Of course it's a city. Jerusalem is a city. What does it mean that Jerusalem in the present is being built as a city? Well, it's not speaking about the physical structure of physical Jerusalem. The grammar is leading us to see he's talking about spiritual Jerusalem. It is the spiritual Jerusalem that was being built in its day and is continuing to be, be, be built now. It's present tense because it's talking about a continuing idea, not something finished in the past, something that is presently happening, that, that continues on. You see, Jesus is building Jerusalem now. Peter talks, uses the word Zion. Zion is often used to talk about spiritual Jerusalem instead of the physical Jerusalem. But you can, it can be both ways depending on, on the, the wording in the text. So we see here that what, what Peter is talking about is he's talking about Psalm 122 in terms of the new covenant. The unveiling of Christ as the cornerstone. Christ as, as the temple of God. If you remember in John 2, Jesus told the crowd that, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And he was not talking about the physical stones there either. He was talking about his body. You see, Jesus is the temple because he houses in himself the presence of God because he is God. Jesus communicates this idea over and over in the Gospels and it's picked up on in the epistles where Jesus is the one who brings the presence of God back to humanity through the new covenant. And on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, Jerusalem is being built as a city. For we are the royal priesthood, the holy nation, a people for his own possession. And we are that because Christ has come, taken on humanity, both God and man, he came and he lived the perfect life. And he died on the cross because of our rebellion, because of our sin. You see, we are, we are just like the people of Israel who rejected Jesus as their king. We are all rejectors of Christ too from birth. From birth, we go our own way. We go astray and we, we seek to fix our own problems with our own energies and our own talents and capabilities. But we, we don't come to Christ naturally. And yet Christ came to draw people to himself. And he died to pay the price that, that we should have paid. It was our sin, therefore we should have paid that price. But we don't pay the price. Christ paid the price for us. His blood shed on the given on the cross is what 
purges away our sin in the sight of God. Christ cleanses us. And then Christ rose again in power and victory over sin and death. And so he offers to all to come and to drink of the water of life freely. For those who believe in Jesus Christ, accept his death in place of theirs and bow before him as their risen king. These people are Jerusalem, built on the foundation of Christ. See, that's who we are. We are the temple kingdom. Built on Christ, our cornerstone. So because we are the temple kingdom of God, we must rule in Christ through the gathered church in unity, peace, and love. So we'll take apart this phrase, we must rule in Christ through the gathered church in unity, peace, and love, and we'll talk about it in three sections. So first... We rule in Christ. Ephesians 2 talks about this. Ephesians 2, 5 to 7. Before we get to Ephesians 2, uh, let's look at the wording of Psalm 122. See, verses 3 to 5. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. So there's a clear indication, a clear expression of ruling here in Psalm 122. You might think, well, this is talking about Israel. And I'm not saying it's not talking about Israel. I'm going to suggest it's talking about more than just Israel. Again, notice the language of the text. To which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel. That's a curious wording if he's just talking about Israel. The word as is the word like. So as was decreed for Israel, so this is also decreed. But it would be kind of redundant to say, as was decreed for Israel, so is decreed for Israel. That's a very strange way of of communicating that statement. And why call it the tribes of the Lord? Why not call it the tribes of Israel? It seems to me the text is trying to get us to think beyond Israel as a physical, biological nation. It's driving us to think of Israel as something bigger in the plan of God. For the tribes of the Lord are those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Back to 1 Peter 2. The kingdom of priests, the royal priesthood. Those who believe in Christ are the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel. We're not excluding Israel, because Israel is still the tribes of the Lord as well. But the glory... And mystery, as Ephesians 3 puts it, is that the kingdom of God was never only for Israel, but it expands beyond the borders of Israel, and it goes to the nations. That's why Jesus says that the temple was was a house of prayer for all nations. It was always meant to extend beyond Israel. Israel was always meant to be the kingdom of priests that would bring all nations into the presence of God. And so in Psalm 122, it's that same theme is being brought up again. The text and the wording is trying to get us to to think beyond Israel, to think of what God is doing. We read in Hebrews 12, did we not? This, This festal gathering in the heavenlies, where all tribes and tongues and kindred and nations all assemble before God. You see, that's the great crescendo of redemption, 
Everything is building towards this, this glorious picture where all tribes, kingdoms, and nations live together in the presence of God, fall down, and worship the Savior, the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the beauty of it is that we don't wait to rule with Christ in the future, though that undoubtedly will happen. We rule with Christ right now. And you're thinking, how is that possible? And I'm still amazed and don't quite understand exactly how it's possible either, but I'll give some ideas. But first, let's look at Ephesians 2 and see, well, it does clearly state that we are, in fact, ruling with Christ now. Ephesians 2, 5 to 7. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Notice how often Jesus Christ comes up? He's clearly the main focus point. But notice also in verse 6 that we are raised with Christ where? And seated with, with him in the heavenly places. Wow, what a truth. It can seem often, does it not, that we're fighting a losing battle. Have you felt that in your own life? Have you, have you peered into, into the, the events of your life and gone, wow, I failed here, 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 I sinned here, here, here. Have you heard the voices in your head which tell you you're a failure? You've done nothing good. Why try? Why bother? See, Satan wants us to forget a very big reality. He wants us to forget the truth that we're not, we're not defeated. Come what may, whether it be disease, whether it be famine, whatever situation we find ourselves in, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. What does that mean? Well, when Christ ascended into heaven after he rose again, he sat at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ is seated on the throne of God. And what Paul is telling us is we are seated with Christ on the throne of God. And that is happening right now. Not a future reality, but currently and presently Christ reigns and we reign with him. That is why in verse 5 of Psalm 122, their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Again, there is also a future reality where where we sit on the thrones and rule with God. But we're quick to think only of the future, and we're quick to think, oh, well, that's going to happen in the future. Let's hold on now. Let's persevere now. Let's, let's, Let's hunker down now. But friends, there's no need to hunker down. Because we roll now. We're not defeated. Hard-pressed, yes. Never defeated. Because we roll in Christ. And the only way we can be defeated is if Christ is defeated. And that's impossible because Christ has already defeated sin and death. He's already crushed the head of Satan. On the cross, Christ won a decisive victory, and in his resurrection, he proved that victory. So I encourage you, I implore you, the world wants you to believe that everything is in chaos, 
The world wants you to believe that you should run and hide. The world wants you to believe that you're embattled. Our friends, brothers, sisters, we are in a battle, but we're on the winning side. We rule with Christ. And when all is said and done, we sit on the throne. Not in our own name, not for our own glory, but in Christ Jesus, our King, our Lord. So how do we rule in Christ? We rule in Christ through the gathered church. Psalm 122 is all about the gathered church. In the context of the Old Covenant, he's talking about Israel. But again, I'm suggesting the text would lead us farther than Old Covenant Israel. It leads us to think of the New Covenant reality in which all tribes are the tribes of the Lord who believe in Christ. Notice what David here is saying. I was glad when they said to me, verse 1, let us go to the house of the Lord. And look at verse 9. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. So verse 1 and verse 9 is setting the context. It often happens in, in Hebrew literature here in the Psalms, where it'll, the, the first and the last verse will kind of bracket the psalm and provide the context for what we're talking about. It's the house of the Lord. Again, it's a psalm of ascent that also tells us it's all about the house of the Lord. This is the gathering of the people of God. That's what is happening here. This is not an individual reality. It's a corporate reality. We don't rule by ourselves. We aren't isolated kings and queens. We rule as a gathered people. We rule together in Christ Jesus. In 1 Timothy 5.17, we, we, Paul talking to the gathered church, speaking about the structure of the church. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. There is rulership being happening, occurring in the gathered church. But it's, it's not only the elders who are ruling, because consider 1 Corinthians 5. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is a church discipline context. Somebody was sinning grievously and not repenting. And so Paul talks to the church, the, the gathered assembly, and tells them that judgment has been pronounced, and they are supposed to enact that judgment. So under the leadership of the rulers, of the elders, as, as a body, they are together, church, elders, as one united body, they are together supposed to pronounce judgment. Why? Because we sit on the throne of God in Jesus Christ. So we have the authority, and we are commanded to exercise authority over people. We are supposed to enact judgment, 
to give discipline. And to not do that is to disobey the word of God. And the point is not just to cast people out. The point is to deliver people to Satan. Why? That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Judgment is not meant to just oppress people. Judgment is meant to restore people. The point is we want the brother or sister, whoever sinned, to be restored back into the community of the faithful. But one of the ways we do that is by enacting judgment. There is a lot of attack in this world against the gathered church. This past year, there's been a lot of talk and there's been a lot of worry about gathering as the people of God. I don't want to get too much into that, but I want to encourage people. You all are here, and so praise God. You have decided to gather with the people of God. So you are obeying Psalm 122. And I commend you and I encourage you. It's been a difficult year to gather with the people of God, has it not? There are many voices who are telling you, oh, you can do this at home. Just go on Zoom, go on the internet, listen to your favorite preacher. We can call that gathering. There are many voices within the church that are saying, oh, we can set this aside for now and we'll just wait. Well, it's been years, literally. One to two, depending on where you are in the world. But friends, there's nowhere in the word of God that says that we can not gather. There's no exception clause in the gathering of the saints. Because as a people, we are called to gather. That that is who we are. And throughout the history of the church, whether persecution or not, the church has always maintained they must gather. To forsake the gathering of ourselves together is a sin, according to the book of Hebrews. So I encourage you, It's hard now. There are many voices that will tell you don't do it. And they will speak to safety and security. Let us read Psalm 122 again and look at how safety and security is defined by Psalm 122. It's different than how the world is defining it right now. Look at verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. Where is security? Within your walls. What are we talking about? Jerusalem. Security exists within the gathered assembly. That's where the Christian security is. It's in the gathered assembly in Christ Jesus. If we're seeking security outside of the gathered assembly, we're not really secure. That's what the world wants us to do. That's what Satan wants us to do. Satan wants us to stop gathering. That's been his plan ever since God called the gathered church. He'll use any excuse, persecution, natural disaster, disease. He's always been trying to fragment, to divide the church. And so I encourage you all, 
gathering together is not an option. It is what we're called to do. It is how we rule in this world. We cannot rule with Christ unless we gather together. We rule in Christ through the gathered church in unity, peace, and love. Notice in verses 6 through 9 how this, these three things are talked about. Unity, peace, and love. We see unity in verse 3 more specifically. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together. Again, if this is talking about a physical city, it's kind of a strange expression. How is a physical city bound together? It can be built, it can be placed, but bound, that's covenantal language. We are bound together through the covenant that Christ has given to us. The new covenant. There's this covenant reality in which Christ and his people are bound together. They're united together through the cross of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' blood, he has drawn us together as one body, as one people, bound firmly together. This is a unity that cannot be discarded. Think of John 17, the unity that we have in Christ Jesus. Before Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus talks about wanting the people of God to be in him as he is in God. And so in John 17, 16 to 17, Jesus says about his disciples, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. See, how are we bound together? We are bound together by the word of God. Again, why do we gather together? One of the main reasons we gather together is to hear the word of God preached. This is our unity. Again, there's lots of calls for unity in this world. But the unity that Christ is talking about is very specifically a unity of the people of God around the Word of God. We must strive for unity without compromise. There are many voices to compromise truth. To set aside truth because, oh, people disagree, so... Unity must be the highest truth. There is no unity in error, or biblical unity. I mean, there is unity in error, but that leads to judgment. But for the approval of God, we are called for for unity in truth. Look at the emphasis of peace, verse verse 6 and 7. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Peace be within your walls. We must strive for peace without placating. Again, often this this call for unity is bound in a call for peace. Division is seen as a horrible thing. So we want a peace, but it's so easy to have a false peace. To talk about peace as a means to override error. Uh, But we can't have justice and truth without peace. And we can't have peace without justice and righteousness. Think of how Isaiah describes the kingdom of God. 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there would be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The kingdom of God is about righteousness and justice, and that's how we get peace. But too often today, we're looking for peace in all the wrong places. We've discarded with righteousness because we've discarded the word of God. We've come up with our own righteousness, with our own set of what is right and what is wrong. We've appealed to the, 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 the social body. The community now gets to determine what's right and what's wrong. The political arena is where right and wrong is determined. That's the way the world sees it now. But we as believers in Jesus Christ, we're not looking for some kind of social group think where we as a society get to decide what we think is good and what we think is wrong. For peace only comes with righteousness. And if we truly want peace, we must first have peace with God. Through Jesus Christ. You see, we're enemies with God naturally. And it is Christ who makes peace between God and man by taking our punishment and restoring the relationship with God. Once that happens, then we can start having peace with our fellow man. A peace that flows from righteousness, a, ple- a peace that speaks of true justice as defined by the word of God. We must strive for security without fear. Again, where is security found? Security is found within the gathered assembly. There are many voices that are, that are calling us to fear. Turn on the, the networks and you'll very quickly see that they want fear. Again, I'm not going to go into specific details. But there is a spirit of fear that is being pressed on people far and wide. But think of 2 Timothy 2. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. You see, spirit, Satan is the one who wants to foster fear in the hearts of humanity. But God has not given us such a spirit. We have power, love, and self-control. Why? We reign with Christ. What have we really to fear? What have we to hide from? We reign with Christ. And if there's one truth that we need so desperately right now, it's to know and to experience the reality that we reign with Christ. The world wants to hide and separate. That is very natural to the world. Because that is what they do. Everywhere I've gone, separating, division, runs rampant. And yet, we as believers, as the tribes of the Lord, as those who've been drawn into, into covenant unity with Christ, we have a different message. We do not have the message of fear. We have the message of courage because we reign with the true God. So friends, I implore you, don't hide. Don't run away. Don't listen to the voices of fear that, 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 that want to keep you separated from the body of Christ. You've been bound together 
We who sit here together, we're not just passive observers. We're not here just to, to, to sit and just to listen and then go home and live our own lives. We've been bound together. We don't make unity. Ephesians 4 doesn't say that we make unity. Ephesians 4 says that we maintain the unity of the Spirit. Why? Because Christ is the one that unified us. We did not unify us. And therefore, we cannot disunify ourselves. We've been put together. We've been bound together. And Christ has done an impossible work. If you know anything about tribalism, you'll know that unity is really non-existent. I don't know if you're familiar with tribal justice. Tribal justice says this. You kill one of my people, I kill ten of yours. Whole tribes kill each other off because it always escalates. Always escalates. You see, we are, we are, we are bent to separate and to divide and to fight. But what does Christ tell us to do? Christ has, has bound us together. And because of that, we have no need to fear. We have power. We have love. We have self-control. We have Christ. We reign with Christ. And so we strive for love without hypocrisy. Notice verse 6. May they be secure who love you. Verse 9. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. We seek the good of the gathered church. That's why we're here. We're here to honor God and serve God and worship God, to love God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. But so often love can be hypocrisy, right? I mean, the world often likes to, to, to paint Christians as hypocrites. And to be fair, sometimes they're right. But also, to be fair, they're often wrong. In Romans 12, Paul admonishes us, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. One of the marks of a Christian is a genuine love for brothers, for sisters. You see, in reading Psalm 122, I was convicted because as I read this passage, if this defined who we are, we would be starkly different than the world around us, especially now. If we found our security in the walls of Jerusalem, in the gathered church, we would be very different from the people around us. If we found peace in the gathered assembly, peace with God and peace with man, we would be very different than the people around us who are sending out their tweets, writing their long diatribes on Facebook walls, arguing and bickering over one political thing over another political thing. That should not characterize who we are, for we have been given a spirit of peace. Security without fear, that does not exist in the world. Their security is within the idea of fear. They run from their problems because they have not Christ 
They have no harbor. They have no refuge. And their love is often very hypocritical themselves. For they're not looking for the good of their neighbor, but often the world around is looking for their own good, their own safety. But we're called to be different. We're called to have a unity without compromise. We're called to have peace without placating. We're called to have security without fear and love without hypocrisy. We're called to be a city set on a hill. We're called to be an example of of the true humanity. What was designed from the very beginning in Genesis 1, where God gives rulership to Adam. And from Adam till now, we rebel. And yet Christ, the greater Adam, has come into this world. And he's fixed the problem. And he reigns. And we reign with him. So friends, as we close today, I want to offer three challenges. First, to commit to attending the gathered church regularly, covenanting with the church, and participating in kingdom work. Now is the time to come together We have been bound together. Let's live out this reality that we are bound together in Christ. More so than ever, let us come together as the body of Christ and worship Christ and show the world that there is one thing more important than our safety and our security, and that is our worship of the true God. Think of the time of Pharaoh, Israel in in Egypt, Moses said, we want to go worship the Lord. We want to gather together and worship to the Lord. And what did Pharaoh say? No, you can't do it. So what did God say? Well, judgment is what followed. Maybe today we're having such a situation in our own lives. When worship is forbidden, discouraged. When we're mocked and called out as fools. Let us remember that when we gather together, we're obeying Christ. And there will be a judgment that will follow on those who mock and deride. Let us be those who gather together and worship him in unity and in truth. Let us commit to doing one good thing for a brother or sister in the church. Think this week, how can you do just one good thing to somebody? Some ideas would be praying for someone. Here in the passage, praying is given very specifically. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We are a kingdom of priests. As a priest, we offer prayers to God on behalf of each other. So let's find somebody this week. Find somebody here today and ask them, how can I pray for you? How can I intercede before you, before the throne of God? Serving someone. As you talk with people and as you live a life together as the body of Christ, can you notice things in people's lives that they need? Ways that you can can meet needs. Find someone who has a need and look to help. Encourage someone. Sometimes we we can think we have to do some great and, and glorious thing, but sometimes a word of encouragement can go a very long way. Do you notice somebody who's discouraged, who's been struggling with sin, who's been struggling with the state of this world, who's discouraged and and depressed, 
who's angry at some political thing or some other thing? Do we know each other enough that we can tell when somebody's just off? I encourage you, come together. Deepen your relationships with each other so you can know when a word of encouragement is needed. Because we need each other. We've been called to be together. And lastly, strive for unity without compromise. Peace without placating. Security without fear. And love without hypocrisy. May the Spirit of God bind us together on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ to live together as one people, a kingdom of priests, to proclaim the word of the Lord without fear, in boldness, and in grace, that the world might know where they can find peace, where they can find security, how they can be restored to relationship with God through the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. May he come quickly. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you. We glorify you for who you are. We we thank you that that a gathering together is not just some obligation, but it's how you meet with us. We come together as one people, bound firmly together under Christ our King and our Lord. Oh, we pray. Strengthen us, for we are in need of great strength. This is an hour in which the world would would separate us and divide us, in which the call of fear resounds in our ears day after day. Oh, help us to remember that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Help us to have a heavenly perspective. To love you with all our heart and soul and strength and mind. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. To be shining examples of your kingdom work in us. Train our hands. Fashion our souls. Encourage our hearts. Make us and form us into a people whose whose concern is your glory and your honor. Who proclaims your name with boldness and passion. Who has no ear for the mocking And the scorning and the deriding who find safety and security with your people. Oh, Father, save us from this world. Fashion our hearts that we might love you 
Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen.